my name is Marissa Conway, and I'm here today with Anne Towns. We are very excited to be talking about all things gender and diplomacy and everything that falls under that topic. Thank you for joining us. So, Anne, I'm going to throw it over to you. Do you just want to give us the rundown of your background, your research, kind of what you're working on right now? Um, well, I'm Anne Towns. I'm a professor of political science. I'm, a, I'm at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, but I have my PhD, all my studies from the U.S., and I've run a program at the University of Gothenburg that's called GENDIP, or Gender and Diplomacy, which has been running for about three years, where we tried to get some of the kind of basics about you know, what the gender dynamics, gender patterns look like in diplomacy. We're focusing initially on bilateral diplomacy, which is basically relations between two states. But we're also interested in the longer run to look at gender and gender dynamics in, in multilateral diplomacy in the United Nations or NATO or any other international organization of that sort. What drew you to this topic in the first place? I'm very interested in the multiple ways in which gender shapes, forms, relations between states or international transnational politics among actors more generally. So previously, I've been interested in, for instance, how states kind of learn or emulate or look to one another in terms of looking for scripts for how to regulate the relation between state institutions and women and how that's changed globally and over time. I'm trying to think about kind of big picture, big stories big questions that concern kind of how gender shapes international politics. And when it comes to diplomacy, what drew me to it, I think, was that, you know, there's a large and very vibrant body of scholarship within international politics that centers on gender in the military. But military, so we know a lot about kind of femininities and masculinities within the military, how the military draws upon but also produces, is productive on masculinities, and how those intersect with, you know, hierarchies of race, class, sexuality. But the military really, I mean, it's one primary institution of international politics, but there's a second one, which is the Diplomacy, right, which is the interaction among states by peaceful means or means other than violence. And in diplomacy, we know virtually nothing right, about how gender works, how it structures diplomatic interactions, what gender does to diplomatic interactions. So I'm not a diplomacy scholar. My background is not on diplomacy but I'm, I was very interested in trying to think about how, right, like this whole kind of blank slate of how, how does gender operate here? So that's what attracted me to this. Another big kind of question of how gender shapes relations between states. This idea of a script that you mentioned, have you seen something that's a bit, a bit of like a cookie cutter? You see similar things working in different locations. Do you think... These things are more context-specific. So you're asking me about whether there's scripts in international politics when it comes to gender. And I would say yes, absolutely, and there have been for a long time. So it's not, you know, lots of people tend to think that that gender issues entered the international arena in the 70s, right, with these UN, the decade of women, and when the UN brought in women's issues on, on its agenda. But, you know, concern with an interest in the status of women, in gender issues more broadly, have been in international affairs and expressly 
I would say, on the minds of state representatives for several hundred years, at least, I would say, since probably the early 19th century and possibly longer. I haven't gone back longer than that, but I think that seems to me to be when it first entered kind of the, the language of international politics. You know, in the 19th century, ideas about and language tying the status of women to these international hierarchies between this, what was then considered to be civilized state, and I say that in quotation marks with my fingers up, and what was then referred to as barbarous or less uncivilized. But interestingly, in the early 19th century and throughout the 19th century, even into the early 20th century, there was language about how the political empowerment of women or having women in politics was seen as a barbarous practice that to advance, you needed to keep women out of politics. And, you know, throughout the 19th century, they would, you know, statesmen would draw on scientific ideas of geographers, anthropologists, other social scientists that would be looking at polities or societies, you know, across Western Africa, uh, native societies in North and South America and so forth, to point to them to see, look, those societies there, women have a role in politics. And in some of those societies, women have an equal role in politics. Mm -hmm. And look what happens. You don't advance. These were hegemonic discourses at the time, right? These were very prevalent ways of thinking about how women related to politics, women, men, and politics in terms of international hierarchies, in terms of very racialized ideas, Mm -hmm. right, about advancement and so forth. So we can see how gender and race international hierarchies intersected in a particular way in the 19th century, which then came to change, right? Then you saw the breakthrough of women's suffrage, and once some European, and, you know, it was first was Australia, New Zealand, Finland, once some European states gave women, you know, a formal role in politics, the language also changes to then, you know, civilized, so-called civilized states. And today it seems that we rarely hear mention, right, of the fact that 100 years ago, we talked about these things very differently in Europe. My next question was just going to be, basically, why do you think it is that it's perceived as being this more recent development, having all of this female participation in government? But it actually sounds so inherently deeply linked with kind of these colonial imperial practices of separating like the us, the civilized versus them, the barbaric, that they kind of go a bit Absolutely. And I think that's very interesting with this Bertha Lutz Award, too, that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that Latin American women have been very active in the international arena since the late 19th century, say. So they have taken to kind of the Pan-American arena to, right, to bring about changes, again, like changes in gender relations and also changes in the relations between women and the, their states as, as citizens. Mm-hmm. So they have a long and very activist history, right, of networking across borders, bringing these issues onto, you know, multilateral diplomacy. And that's a history that in Europe or in much of the U.S. is not talked about very often, is not recognized. And if you erase that history, then it's easy to say, well, once this so-called second wave of feminism hit Europe, that's when these things started. So I think it's very important to get, you know, to trace these things back, to look at what were women doing in different parts mm-hmm. of the world. And often when we look at that, then the narrative, I mean, the what I would call the correct narrative, yeah. is quite different, right, from the prevalent narrative that we have around us where 
the story seems to be that we all, the entire world kind of shares one patriarchal history somehow. And somehow European women or North American women were first to break that. That's just not the case. There is no shared patriarchal history because it's looked very different in different parts of the world. Europe was quite patriarchal when there were other parts of the world that were much less so. And also the European women were not the first to start pushing back against these things. So we need a much, much, much more global complex story about how these things came about. Has there been anything that has surprised you in any way as you've kind of conducted this research or anything different than what you would have like expected? Um, Well, are you asking about the diplomacy project or kind of any broader? I think in terms of the broader questions, all these things that I'm telling you now were surprising to me because I did not, I didn't know them before I did my research. So I had expected something quite different. And then I started tracing and looking. And so for me, these were new things also, right? Um, as far as diplomacy, the, the new this new program, I'm not far enough into it yet to say, to know what will be surprising because yeah. I have set up the program. I've started asking questions, but I don't really have the answers mm-hmm. yet. But I think one thing that has surprised me is I think that had assumed that because diplomacy, diplomacy, basically when diplomacy professionalized, which happened in the late 19th century, early 20th century, okay, when you created things like professionalized ministries for foreign affairs and you had, you know, civil servants, entrance exams to become a diplomat, there were established diplomatic academies and so forth. When this happens, that's when women were fully forced out of diplomacy. Before that, it's not as if it was some sort of that women had equal access to diplomacy, but more class or caste or aristocracy versus the rest. I mean, if your elite status trumped your so-called sex, right? So if you're a part of the European aristocracy and you're a woman, it was likely you could be trained in things like formal letter writing, speech giving, the kinds of things that you know that were part and parcel of, of aristocratic diplomacy and interactions between states. But then when diplomacy was professionalized, that's when women are forced out entirely. They were banned from being part, banned from taking the, the diplomatic... Um, the uh, diplomatic exam and so forth. And diplomacy was very slow to open up for women, just like the military has been. And so since, you know, diplomacy was professionalized, women, it's been an all-male institution. So I had assumed that today that diplomacy would be much more kind of masculinized and filled with kind of scripts of masculinity that are more hegemonic. And when I'm you know, trying to come to grips with what sorts of norms, scripts, ideas, rules, like what is this institution? It is not as stably masculinized as I had thought. I thought it would be a question of, you know, women entering into a very male domain. And instead, it's a very unstably male domain mm-hmm. where women are, they can grasp onto kind of scripts that are otherwise like attributed women. All these are obviously social representations, social constructions. So, you know, the listeners can't hear my quotation, my fingers. <laughs> but there, there's overlap between what we understand diplomacy to be and what we understand diplomats to be doing yeah. and what we understand so-called women to be and what so-called women are supposed to be doing, right? The attributions often overlap. Right? Diplomacy is about negotiation, about being empathetic, about being social, socially skilled, 
It's about so-called soft power. It's about representations and food and events and gossip. And many of these things are often also attributed to women. And many of the women diplomats that I've interviewed point this out and say that once, you know, once I understood what diplomacy was, I realized that this is perfect for me because I'm a woman and I'm good at these things. And you know, the male diplomats, they they can be super bright and they're, you know, well-read and well-trained, but they don't intuitively have kind of the social skills that I bring as an extra plus, right, as a woman. I mean, I get a lot of those sorts of answers. So they seize on this and yeah. see it as an opening and a platform for them. Do you see how women are kind of adhering to expectations that currently exist around, like, how to do diplomacy or, like, what diplomats are like? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any who are kind of going against the grain and trying to like shift it from the inside a little bit and and break I guess the more gendered idea of what diplomacy is. Yes. That's a very good question. And I don't really have I don't have any solid answers to that yet, but my so far I would say no. The big I mean if I, if I would have to say yes or no, I would lean towards no. That I would say that diplomacy as an institution is a relatively conservative and very scripted institution, right? And it's not really a place for rebellious types. So again, this is me a few years in and not really, you know, so you have to take my answers to, with, the, with a grain of salt in that sense. But my impression is still that, you know, it is, you don't get rewarded in any sense for being a, a rebel, yeah. right? And all the rewards are about, you know, reproducing the institution, like enacting, being taking on the role as a diplomat and being very professional, right? And that meaning that I think the types of people that are attracted to diplomacy are not the types of people that really would necessarily want to make huge changes yeah. in that sense. I think then you would, you would probably seek out a different career. Yeah. That said, right? There are women, particularly within specific ministries of foreign affairs, that seem to be doing things to change the work conditions within their own ministries. That's not changing diplomacy in the the sense of interstate interactions, but rather within specific ministries and specific bureaucracies, you see, you know, and sometimes collective action. Like in Sweden, there was in the 1980s, there was something called the network. So it was a network of women that, you know, wanted to make changes. They wanted statistics on, like, what does the career pipeline look like? Is it a leaky pipeline? Does it discipline punish women in some way, right? Like, what do the salaries look like? I mean, they push for – so it's a lot of kind of equal opportunity types of, of – but, but that's making diplomacy, in a sense, better and less discriminatory. Mm-hmm. That is not fundamentally altering what diplomacy yeah. is, in a sense, Right. It's more making diplomacy live up to what it's supposed supposed to be. A meritocratic, that's what it's supposed to be today, right? It's supposed yeah. to be meritocracy. It's supposed to be the brightest, the you know, most well-read, the most, you know, I mean, just highly competent people are supposed to get into through these entrance exams. So I would say that by pushing on these sorts of issues, it's... It's getting rid of old vestiges of, of privilege and power, right, and making it more of a meritocratic space. Yeah. That does not, I would say, fundamentally alter what diplomacy is, yeah. rather making it work the way it's supposed to work mm-hmm. these days. And that said, too, I would say that then there are, tiny, there are micro challenges. I mean, 
I'm sure you've read about Madeleine Albright's pins, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that she uses her pins. Men, men don't wear pins, but women wear pins, and she would use her pins to signal. And, you know, many of the women that I've interviewed talk about how they use their clothes in different ways. Mm -hmm. can be, but those are micro challenges. Yeah. Right? You wear a leather skirt, which really signals that you're, you're a lot more kind of relaxed than the usual, you know, it's a mix of kind of business, formal business attire and kind of upper class mm -hmm. aesthetics within diplomacy. And a leather skirt doesn't belong there. Right? Yeah. So there can be those small acts of resistance. I run an organization called the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. So feminist foreign policy is my jam. Um, and the approach we take is very much kind of rethinking how how power exists in the foreign policy space and trying not just to, um, you know, make make sure that policy has these more feminist objectives or even that the policymaking process is more feminist, but also to really like challenge power inequalities and then actually move into that process of kind of like reshaping the institution so that it less and less kind of perpetuates this structural violence mm -hmm. that we we see come out of foreign policy a lot so and one of the things is that you know there's this encouragement of diplomacy because it's sort of the the answer rather than um or, or not the answer but a way to take a step away from kind of the way security is typically done which is like this threat of violence mm -hmm. so it's this very ever-present threat of violence and that's how we ensure peace mm -hmm. where diplomacy is a lot more let's let's have a conversation let's mm -hmm. talk it out and of course this there's so many exceptions to all of this um but then underneath feminist foreign policy looking at diplomacy in that way saying that it's actually a really difficult institution to go into if you're trying to make a change mm -hmm. how like I guess like personally I guess how would you kind of fit all of these puzzle pieces together and like if, you know, maybe, maybe what I'm really asking you is like, what is a feminist way of doing diplomacy beyond just trying to include more women to get equal representation? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's one piece of, you know, one piece of it is including more women. And I think that that matters for at least two reasons. I mean, one of them being that the, the fairness of the institution. If we really believe these things to be meritocratic, then it should be merit and not, you know, gender description that should matter, like what to whether you get in there or not. So I mean, and that's you know, that's something we have to work institution by institution, right? Mm -hmm. So diplomacy is one institution among many. That said, diplomacy is a very prestigious institution, so it matters in that sense too. This is these are very prestigious postings and. You know, there. I think in most countries, there are lots of applicants, right, to yeah. very few spots. So making sure that women also have access to these, I think, you know, is as important as any other institution and possibly more so because of mm -hmm. the prestige and power and the male exclusivity of it in, historically. Because an, it's so prestigious, I think it's also very important in a second sense, and that is that, you know, there's more and more research showing, right, that the visual representation matters, not just to women, but to all groups that are like social categories, socially constituted categories in some sense. So when you see women in positions of power, it matters to other women. And this obviously then we have to think of this in terms of the intersection of other things mm -hmm. like ethnicity, race, 
other issues. So, we, you know, it's obviously not the case that if it's all women, all white women in diplomacy, yeah. that it necessarily okay. empowers everyone equal, all other women equally. So I'm not saying that. But having women in positions of power and prestige changes how both men and women think about and view or, or connect kind of gender with power mm-hmm. and influence and yeah. leadership, right? So it matters in that sense too. It changes the norms in society. So for that, you know, that having women there matters in that sense, right? So I would push back against people that, that think that this is just like kind of merely, you know, head counting and so forth, mm-hmm. right? You hear that a lot. And I agree. I mean, this is not the only or necessarily the most important arena for gender equality change, but it's one arena and it also matters and it's not merely, right? Yeah. So that's... You know, that's the kind of representation piece that matters in and of itself. But then obviously for feminist foreign policy, there are the other there are the other issues, right? The resources, the distribution of resources between men and women and between men and women there's differently situated within all these other hierarchies. So a feminist foreign policy worth its salt needs to be attentive to those issues. Thinking through all policy arenas in terms of gender hierarchies and how those intersect without other hierarchies is a very important dimension of, of feminist foreign policy. But there's bound to be then conflicts in foreign policy yeah. goals. It's not given like what a feminist foreign policy would look like mm-hmm. with all these intersecting hierarchies, for instance, like which ones do you privilege, right? And if there are conflicts of interest between different groups of women or between different groups, you know, women and men and so forth and so forth, like what do you prioritize, Feminist foreign policy is what that is, is a function, again, of power and struggles, you know, there are conflicts of interest and there are struggles and so forth. So, I mean, for me as a scholar, like I can't really give an answer to what it is or it yeah. should be, but rather to say that it's an Pregnant, outcome of yeah. of political, you know, haggles, yeah. right? I think and that's, I mean, yeah. well, I was just going to say, I think that's such an important point that it's, there's so much going on. And I think that's why it is such a difficult thing to pin down sometimes. Yeah. So like one of the things that we kind of advocate around is, is eliminating nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think I see this really interesting kind of split between the two camps of people who think we need to keep them. Like, yeah, it's not great that we have them, but they're here. This is what keeps us safe. And then the people who want to eliminate them who say like they're absolutely unsafe. We need to get rid of all nuclear weapons now, period. And the thing I find really interesting is that like, this is my opinion, but I think a lot of our world order is built around who has nuclear weapons and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so when you take that out of the scenario, because I've asked this to, to both sides of, you know, multiple people from kind of both groups of thinking before. And I'm like, this is kind of a, this would fundamentally make how we understand the, the, the international order. It would, it would shake the very foundation and just change everything, I think. But what that would be is like, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know until you do it? And I feel like there's that parallel with feminist foreign policy that it's like, we, we know what we want. We, we know what we need to do to get there. But there's also this huge like, there's so many influencing factors mm-hmm. that it is a little bit possible, impossible to to say with certainty, like what exactly this would look like. Mm-hmm. Anyways. No, there's that issue of like, what would it look like? Would, you know, would gender disparities necessarily be better or look different without nuclear weapons? That's one mm-hmm. issue. 
the other question is also the realm of the possible. Mm -hmm. Is that even a possibility? And like, how do we assess the feminist foreign policy, foreign policy, you know, in light of like given power realities, yeah. right? And I think the Swedish feminist foreign policy coming up against Swedish arms exports in Saudi Arabia is a very good example of that, right? It has made some people say that feminist foreign policy is worth nothing because it obviously doesn't, it didn't make any difference, right, in terms of Sweden exporting weaponry to 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 Saudi Arabia, where you know the situation for women is less than wonderful, right? The question is if you know what, what I guess what I'm trying to get is like what what do we use to assess not just what a feminist foreign policy should be, but also what's possible and feasible, yeah. right? And maybe at this point, you know fundamentally altering a state's the core of a state's security policy can't be the measuring rod for whether you know in one or two years the feminist yeah. foreign policy is successful or not right? and i think if if the measuring rod is eliminating nuclear weapons then you know not to be a downer but i think that it's <laughs> that's yeah i i wonder if the feminist foreign policy will succeed if yeah. that's the measuring rod Definitely. so back to your your current research mm -hmm. um so you earlier when we were chatting, you said there are kind of four main pillars mm -hmm. to everything that you're doing. Do you want to kind of detail sure. what those are now? Sure. So again, I mean, the gender program is focused on bilateral diploma diplomacy and it's diplomacy in the narrower sense. So it has to do with diplomacy as practiced by diplomats. Mm -hmm. Those They're officially designated by states as diplomats. Mm -hmm. So it's not diplomacy just in terms of Kind of, I mean, because diplomacy can be a lot of things if we think of it simply as, you know, interactions between states or representatives mm -hmm. of states in, you know, in nonviolent ways, right? But here, if we think about diplomacy as what diplomats do, that's that's what my project focuses on. And then, like, what, in what ways are those diplomatic interactions and diplomatic practices gendered, right? Like, what kind of gender patterns or gender scripts, gender norms, gender ideas are infused diplomacy as it's practiced today by diplomats? And how do kind of the gender dynamics, how do those intersect with international hierarchies, mm -hmm. but also racial, you know, hierarchies of sexuality and so forth, right? So those other kind of dimensions come in to the project also not necessarily always the same one so gender is is centered and international hierarchies are centered but then race class sexuality comes in at, in different pieces of the project so the program then kind of has right now it has four legs so to speak the first one has to do with formal positions basically within diplomacy so it, those sort of things like within ministries of foreign affairs there are different post positions of rank within the organization. There are also different kind of geographical offices or different substantive offices. So different ministries of foreign affairs are organized in different ways. So one of the questions that we ask is where do men and women end up within the organization? Very classical kind of sociological type of question, right? Like where are men and women in the organization and what does that say in terms of power and prestige, right? So gender, power, prestige within the institution. And there, I don't really do that work, but I have a person, a public administrations person that's working within my program that's doing work on Sweden and a few other ministries of foreign affairs. But I'm also trying to pull together scholars from around the world. They're doing work on the Indian Ministry for Foreign Affairs, mm -hmm. Indonesia, Australia, Canada, Brazil, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, Lebanon, and a range of other places so that we can kind of compare 
and contrast, right? What does it look like within within these organizations? Then another way to, to get a grip on kind of for, formal positions within diplomacy is to look at ambassador postings. Mm-hmm. So we've set up, a, we're trying to do a, a database on ambassador postings and gender. And we've started with the postings or the posts, I should say, and whether male or female diplomats in posts in 2014. And that's about 10,000 posts, somewhere close to there, that we've looked at to see how many women are there. Just basic numbers. This is not the most exciting piece of the research, but it's necessary, yeah. right? We need to have a lay of the land in these very basic terms, mm-hmm. right? And we all know that gender is complex and gender is performed and whatnot. But diplomacy is also very conservative, which means that it, as a diplomat, you're, you're scripted either Mr. Mrs. often, right? Sometimes Mr. Ms. You're his excellence or her excellency, and there's not really any other options. And in those terms, in terms of the, you know, your, the pronouns and the titles that you're ascribed, how many of those suggest that you're interpreted as woman and how many that you're interpreted as man, right? And there we can see that it's still just 15% women ambassadors in the world. 85% of the ambassadors in 2014 were men, right? We're also looking at, like, if we rank kind of ambassador postings in terms of the military prestige of the state in terms of military expenditure or the economic the size of the economy there are lots of different ways to make these rankings right we can see that women are really are not really overrepresented at the lower rungs but they're very underrepresented in the very top so washington dc berlin moscow london paris women are much fewer than 15 percent in those postings which is that there's some sort of glass ceiling type of effect going on here. So at the highest kind of core power positions in diplomacy, there are way fewer women than there should be. And then in terms of the rest of the world, there's not really patterns, at least in these kind of power and prestige lines. But we do have a bunch of master students now. They're looking at all kinds of things, like do women end up in a foreign aid embassies if they're, you know, if they're posted from European or aid or donor countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, do women and do men end up in the militarized kind of environments? Um, do states send women diplomats for symbolic reasons, perhaps to signal that they're a certain kind of state or that they have certain intentions? I mean, we have lots of master students working on all kinds of these sorts of issues now too. So there might be other patterns, but in terms of just the kind of international hierarchy and what are the most prestigious postings in the kind of core states of international society, the women are not there. There are a few women there, so it's not like there are none, but they are highly underrepresented in those posts. So that's the one leg, is kind of where men and women in the formal organizations and posts of diplomacy. And I love what you say about like that phrase, power and prestige. And it just makes me think of, um, you know, saying like, um, you can't be what you can't see sort of thing, where it's it really kind of reshapes, by including more women, reshapes exactly how we understand power and Mm -hmm. prestige and just that simple act of including more women in diplomacy really mm-hmm. changes that understanding inherently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting there also to see that, you know, some, you know, there's great variation in terms of sending states, like which states have more women ambassadors than others. And some of that is kind of not so surprising, right? Mm-hmm. Scandinavian countries have a higher number or higher proportion of women ambassadors. But other than that, I think, again, when we look, Right. You can see that, you know, Europe does worse. If we exclude Scandinavia, Europe does worse in terms of sending women ambassadors than does Latin America or Africa. It's not huge differences, but 
still, it's yeah. not as if the Europeans are somehow better at this, yeah. right, than other parts of the world, which I think is an important thing to take away. Mm. And also that there's lots of variation, right, among states of different regions. Colombia and Philippines both have more women ambassadors than, or the same number as Denmark does, right? Mm. So there's, there's variation also within geographic regions, right? Anyhow, so then formal posts, formal both within ministries of foreign affairs, but then also if we can look at ambassador postings around the world, that's one way to kind of get a very basic sense right, of where the men and the women are. The second leg of the project has to do with how we talk about diplomacy and diplomats in gendered terms, the, the rhetoric and the symbolic representation of diplomacy and diplomats. And here, so far, I've looked primarily at U.S. representations in U.S. policy circles, U.S. foreign affairs types of journals, right, and how diplomacy is discussed and talked about there. And there, what was surprising to me is that it's diplomacy is not really represented as hegemonic masculine terms. So sometimes, you know, you can talk about there. there's kind of a, a business masculinity, for instance, yeah. that because, uh, of course, we wouldn't expect it to be kind of military masculinity yeah. in diplomacy, of course. But we can imagine some sort of elite finance business type of masculinity at work in diplomacy. You, we, you see some of that, right? The rational, you know, the very sophisticated, the well-dressed and Right. So in that sense, it, it aligns with other masculinities that we've seen in research from before. But that said, it also seems that, like I said earlier, that diplomacy is talked about very much in the same terms, very stereotypical. My fingers are up again with the quotation marks <laughs> terms, the way that women are understood and represented and talked about. That diplomacy is soft power, that diplomacy is an alternative to manly force, right? Yeah. That diplomacy is about negotiating, which is what weaker actors do. Diplomacy has to do with being empathetic, establishing relationships. Mm -hmm. It also has to do with things like gossiping, representations, food, drinks, or social event. It's the weaker states yeah. that have to do this. That's is really interesting. Yeah. Air quotes again. Yes. Um, yeah, just that perception that if you don't have the brute force to intimidate someone into whatever that objective is, not attacking you, I suppose, mm -hmm. then you have to take this more feminized route of of interacting with other states. I can see how that would kind of almost have states fall into these very gendered categories themselves mm -hmm. to like set up these perceptions of like, you know, the US is this big, strong, masculine protector hero. Like yeah. we do diplomacy because we can, not because we have to. Uh, anyways. And then, I mean, in US, and this is particular to the United States, I think there's also this idea, right, that I mean, diplomacy has a f contemporary diplomacy has a French foundation, right? So there are a lot of French terms used within diplomacy. And diplomats obviously travel and are sophisticated. And in the US, they come out of elite universities. So there is the sense that it's the kind of Frenchified elite East Coast establishment man, which is also often feminized in US circles or in US discourse. So French. Right? It's a feminized language, is seen as something you feet, right? And French is the foundation of diplomacy. So in that, I mean, there in these also interesting, there's a kind of a, a class critique of, yeah. of diplomacy as the kind of effeminate, upper-class, Frenchified way of being, right? Which is not the true, you know, George Bush, Texas uh, yeah. kind of, right? Real, <laughs> real American man, 
and which I find really interesting too that that often comes up also these again sophisticated unmanly you know pinstriped elegant you know cookie pushers as they're called so how do you like reconcile these two things with obviously like diplomacy the kind of perception of the qualities needed for diplomacy are a bit more feminized and yet it is this really heavily male-dominated I find that very, very interesting. I mean, the, the way, and I don't have a good answer for that yet, but it's a question that I'm puzzling and I'm thinking about. But one obvious answer, I think, is that it has been a continuous, it's not as prestigious anymore, but it's a very prestigious mm-hmm. institution, right? It it's it's yeah. has a lot of status. That status is, I think, I mean, it's, the prestige is... is it's not quite as prestigious as it were. I mean, it used to be that foreign affairs had to go through the ministries of foreign affairs, right? Today, ministries can deal with their foreign counterparts directly. They don't have to go via the foreign ministry, yeah. which means that, you know, you don't have the same clout as you did before. And so there's been a kind of crisis for diplomacy, right? Like, what's diplomacy for? What is it needed for? And so forth in a more globalized world. But it's still very prestigious. If we look at the number of applicants again, right, to the diplomacy exams, there are usually, I mean, there are tons of people who want to be diplomats, right? And it still has an air of prestige. Well, this makes me think, too, is that it's like a power thing, really. So even though, you know, I I think feminizing diplomacy is a way at lashing out at diplomacy. It's a way Mm. to denigrate diplomacy, to make it inferior to military options. It can be a class critique. It can be all these sorts of things. But it doesn't seem to, until now maybe, but it doesn't seem to rattle the institution enough that that men don't want to be there or that it's not a male bastion. Because you still fall in line with the state and you still get your moment in the spotlight yes for sure is the reason and this is a big question i don't know if we can answer it but is the reason that we're seeing such an influx of women into diplomacy since the 90s is that because of globalization and the kind of emptying out of real power from diplomacy from foreign ministries Mm. is that why i mean is it like school teachers or i mean is it one of those like you know it loses its powers at the same time that women enter into it i i have no idea who said this or when I heard or whatever, but this, you know, this idea that the patriarchy is always kind of shifting and changing to adapt yeah. to whatever's going on. It's not necessarily that like, aha, we're breaking through, but actually yeah. it's just kind of in this really nefarious way being like, right, come on in women. We're yes. taking the power away now. Yeah. Which... I mean, now the finance sector might be more important. Yeah. Right? And how many women are there in finance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So. I think the assumption shouldn't be that everything just remains the same and yeah. that, right, like we have patriarchy on the same terms and in the same way now as we did in 1940, right? I mean, things, even the power relations obviously change. Mm-hmm. So things are different, but they might not be as different yeah. and as changed as, as we think. Right? So I think the answer is somewhere in between yeah. there, right? Is there anything that you want to, like, plug or anything before? Maybe to say that if there are people that are interested in in gender and diplomacy or in the gender program, that I am launching a listserv so that on our website, which is www.gendip.gu.se, there you can find information on how to sign up. 
to the gendered listserv for people that want to receive information about. It's anything ranging from like talks that are being given to new papers that are out to research conferences and other things of interest, right? So to contact me, you know, to sign up to the listserv. It hasn't been launched yet, but it will in the next month. Amazing. Okay. Well, I feel like that's a good, good note to wrap up on. Um, Thank you. Thank you. This was was very good. The coolest conversation. (laughs) Yes. Um, 